0: Good morning. morning Wonderful to be back I'm very sorry I couldn't make it Anzac weekend uh, I was saying to Paul earlier it's a long time since I've been that sick but um, the Lord is good and not only does he heal the broken hearted he heals us when we have any different kinds of physical infirmities so praise God for that let's just pray the prayer he taught us shall we together forever and ever Amen Lord Jesus thank you that when you walked the earth you spoke about the kingdom of God being near and you spoke about the kingdom of God being upon you sorry among people thank you Lord after the day of Pentecost the kingdom of God was here here on earth as the Holy Spirit began to take residence in human beings. We marvel at this. Just as we marvel at this book that you've given us, Lord, the Word of God. We thank you that this Word is the Word of your grace and that it is the Word of your power. So we pray that you would multiply your grace to us and in us and through us As we open the word of God together now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you haven't got a note sheet. Put your hand up. Because Linda's got quite a few spares. And uh, you might have to reach across. And she's already reached across. Wonderful. Thank you for that darling. Because we are going to be looking at quite a few scriptures this morning. And I'd hate us to lose momentum, because people are desperately trying to jot these scriptures down and saying to themselves, I wish he wouldn't go so fast, and things like that. So you can take comfort in the fact that virtually every scripture that we're going to touch on this morning, and there's at least 14 of them, are there on your note sheet, so you've got it to refer to later, along with the picture of the elephants and the turtle, and goodness knows what else. We're talking about, for the next two Sundays... The all-knowing God. The God who knows everything. And here's one thing that I want us to remember, so we're going to say it together in a moment. There isn't anything about which God doesn't know everything. So let's try that together. After me. There isn't anything about which thank you Linda God doesn't know, God doesn't know. Everything. everything beautiful our scriptures today are a launching pad and a homing signal so the first three verses of Hannah's song in 1st Samuel 2 are our launching pad for today all I'll say about Hannah's song is these brief three things number one If I was to be uh, marooned on a desert island and I could only take ten passages of scripture with me to sustain me for the rest of my life, Hannah's song would be one of them. Part of the reason for that, and this is number two, is that to understand Hannah's song, you need to understand the heart of a disciple. And to understand the heart of a disciple, this is number three, you've got to understand Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's Hannah's spirit. That's the spirit that sang this song. And the spirit of God took this song and gave this song through that heart that we might be blessed and edified through it. But in our launching pad scripture today, which is verse 3b of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, we read these words. God is a God of knowledge by him actions are weighed except the English versions of the Bible mistranslate slightly a little word in there because they put the word knowledge unless you read in the NIV which simply translates that verse God is a God who knows which is true because There's nothing, there isn't anything, you ready? There isn't anything about which God doesn't know everything. The word in the Hebrew there, like Elohim, like Seraphim and Cherubim, like we've just been singing about, is plural. Our God is a God of knowledges. There isn't any discipline... Any field of knowledge on this whole earth, or even in the heavens, or in the whole of history, about which God doesn't know everything. That's what she's proclaiming there. Every realm, every field of knowledge, every science, her God knows everything. So that's our launching pad for today where we're going to launch to is the heavens and then the earth and then everything well not quite everything because we'd be here all year under the heavens and on the earth we're going to take man or mankind or male and female created he them as our third segment of what God knows about today so we're going to look first at what God knows and chooses to tell us about in relation to the stars Turn with me if you've got it, or you can just look at your note sheet if you want, to Jeremiah 33, verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured. There's two scientific statements from man's perspective. Man cannot measure the sand of the sea or count the stars of the heavens. Do you know what? It hasn't stopped man trying. (laughs) Funny that. Brahe, who was a Danish astronomer, he lived basically in the 16th century, said there were 777 stars. I know, because I've counted them. And I'm a clever astronomer and scientist. Kepler, who was a Christian, remember, no Christian, the words that come out of Christians' mouths aren't infallible. Kepler gave us some amazing things. He was a man of God, but he got this wrong, because he said, I've counted the stars, and Brahe was wrong, there's 1,005 Going back further in time, Hipparchus of Nicaea said they were actually 1,022. They're getting closer. Have you ever played that game, you're getting warmer. <laughs> well, they were getting warmer, but they were still a long, long way off. And Ptolemy, the great mathematician, raised the number. He didn't really. He actually said it in the second century AD. It was 1,056. Galileo and other scientists had sufficient humility... And sufficient common sense to take Jeremiah 33, literally, and to say that. From man's perspective, these stars cannot be measured. But turn to Psalm 147, verse 4, speaking of God. He counts the number of the stars. And not only does he count the number of the stars as in knows how many there are. He gives names to all of them. Now in 1922, the World Astronomical Society, such as it was called then, got together and decided there were 88 constellations. Now that's pretty impressive. They've moved on from trying to count and limit the limitless number of stars. Let's see if we can gather them together and organise them in a named fashion by counting the number of constellations. And it was pretty good. They named 88 constellations in 1922. But God's been naming them since 1800 BC for man's benefit, as we'll see in a moment. If you turn to Isaiah 40, verse 26, Bill was saying this morning how the end of Isaiah 40, uh, chapter 40, still sustains him daily. And praise God for that, because it should be true of all of us. But let's read Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. At night, that is. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Glory be to God. Just, just notice verse 22 while you've got that open. God is the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Two possible meanings there. Modern astronomy has come to the conclusion that the universe... Is expanding all of the time. But God had told Isaiah that in 735 BC. He stretches out the heavens. Or he's talking there about stretching out the earth's atmosphere to protect it from harmful rays out in the heavenlies. Glory be to God. Not only does he know the number of the stars, he calls them all by name and he gives scientific truth. To anybody who's willing to pick it up and run with it and learn by it. Through the prophet Isaiah. Which brings us to one of my favourite passages of scripture. This is another one that I'd take to my desert island if I was going to be uh, marooned there. And I'd be quite a bit greedy actually because I'd want to take three whole chapters. I'd want to take Job 38, 39 and 40. Let's look briefly at Job 38, 31, where God asks Job, can you bind the chains, or if you're reading the King James Version there, the sweet influences of the Pleiades, otherwise known as the Seven Sisters, or loose the cords of Orion? Now, where's the scientific truth there? I'll tell you where the scientific truth there is. From man's perspective, when we look up at those two clusters of stars, those two constellations, and remember, from man's perspective, when we look up up at them, we can't see all of the stars that are in them. But men for decades, generations, centuries, have been looking up at the heavens and seeing the Pleiades, the seven sisters. And God says there to Job, that's a bound constellation gravitationally, those stars are not shifting anywhere in relation to each other. And modern astronomy has confirmed that statement. It's one of the few bound clusters. If you'd been looking at the Pleiades, a thousand years ago, and you looked up at them tonight, if it's possible to see them in the southern hemisphere tonight, I don't know, winter solstice tomorrow, shortest day tomorrow, eh? and then you look at them again, if the new heavens and new earth or the millennium haven't arrived by then, they would still be the same shape and form from man's perspective. Whereas Orion, the great hunter... And here's an interesting thing. The great hunter, I know this because I come from the Northern Hemisphere originally, the great hunter includes a belt, Orion's belt, three stars. And beneath Orion's belt, there's at least five stars, probably a whole lot more, which seem to take the form of a sword. And if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you can actually navigate... By those stars, find Orion's belt and then find Orion's sword. And wherever Orion's sword is coming, you can get your, your, your compass bearings from. But the rest of Orion, the rest of the great hunter, the stars are moving. If you looked at them a thousand years ago, and then you looked at them tonight, if it's possible to see them in the southern hemisphere tonight, and you look at them again in a thousand years' time, if the new heavens and the new earth haven't come by then, they'd be different except for the bits the individual stars that God enables us in his grace to navigate by isn't that glorious <clears throat> oh and as an aside three or four verses on in verse 35 of Job 38 you'll find electrical currents the binary cord necessary for example for text messaging mentioned by God, to job. As we conclude our brief survey of the heavens, turn, if you would, to second Corinthians, sorry, First Corinthians, chapter 16. And what Paul is talking about here is people are asking, apparently, what does the resurrection body look like, and how will it come? And Paul starts to talk about what a silly question that is. Because God, in his wisdom, has chosen not to tell us what it's going to look like. But then he launches into this discourse about the different kinds of bodies that God has given to different kinds of living creatures and matter on this earth. And incidentally, we're not going to look at it today, but if you look at verse 39, if evolutionists just spend a bit of time with verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 15 they would severely find their theory, or religious doctrine, of evolution majorly undermined. But in verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, or terrestrial bodies and celestial bodies if you prefer, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory that's the statement we want now when we're thinking about the all-knowing god because you and i look up at the stars and they just look like beacons of light get a good telescope and they still just look like beacons of light they might be different size but surely they're the same thing no paul is saying here they're actually all different to each other There's a numberless number of them. They are infinite in number, though God knows them all by name. But they're all different. And over the last 50 odd years, astronomy and space travel has confirmed the fact that the ratio between brightness and temperature of every single star that any man or woman or nation has studied is different. But all of that expense to go into outer space, to discover that. They could have just read 1 Corinthians 15 verse 41 and taken it on faith because there isn't anything about which God doesn't know beautiful. I hope you get warmed up by the end of this sermon because that statement needs to be in our heads and hearts. Not because God is a know-it-all, because if you look at Hannah's song carefully in First Samuel 2, verses one to three, she talks about him being holy first, and then she talks about him being a rock. And then she goes on to talk about the nature of his love for us. So this is really, really important when we're looking at the attributes of God, and we're looking today at the attribute of his omniscience, his all-knowingness, that we remember that his attributes coexist with one another and that ultimately God is love. Even though from man's perspective, whenever man has come anywhere near God, and long may this continue, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Before we leave the stars altogether, I came across this, I'm reading Calvin's Institutes at the moment, and he was talking about the creation, and then he gets to talking about the stars. And remember, Calvin wrote this first in 1536. He says, How great the architect must be, who framed and ordered the multitude of the starry hosts so admirably that it is impossible to imagine a more glorious sight, so stationing some and fixing them to particular spots that they cannot move, giving a freer course to others, yet setting limits for their wanderings, So tempering the movement of the whole as to measure out day and night, months, years and seasons and at the same time so regulating the inequality of days as to prevent anything like confusion. What a glorious statement. What a scientifically accurate statement from John Calvin who wasn't an astronomer, he was a Bible scholar and a pastor who took God's word seriously. Let's look at the earth. Isaiah 40, verses 21 to 22. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He that is God who sits above the chug, the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. If you're happy and your fingers are nimble enough, turn to Proverbs chapter 8 where we read something similar from Christ that is wisdom's perspective. Verse 25 of Proverbs chapter 8. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a chug, a circle, a compass on the face of the deep. That's not talking about the deep of the sea. That's talking about the deep, deep space, outer space. When he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit and so on and so forth, I was there. Now what's so interesting about that? Well the Hebrew word chug can be translated sphere. But Isaiah 40 verse 22 is actually saying God's up there and he's looking down and the whole thing, the whole of your planet looks like a circle to him. There was no Hebrew word for sphere in those days. So God gave the word chug, which was the scientifically accurate word. How long did people, many people, think that the earth was flat? Don't buy into this nonsense that it was only the sailors of brave Christopher Columbus that worked out that the earth was round... because everybody else was worried about uh, sailing through the the straits of Gibraltar... and falling off the end of the earth... people knew a lot earlier than that... that the earth was round. A man by the name Beautiful Man of God... I don't know if he was a man of God... he may not have been a man of God... but he was a beautiful man and he had a beautiful mind... his name was Eratosthenes. Eratosthenes was the chief librarian... of the world's biggest library... Sometime between the years 276 and 194 BC, Alexandria in Egypt had the world's biggest library back then. And this dear man, Eratosthenes, who was its chief librarian, spent years of his life inviting feedback... Observations and perspectives from people all around the known world about what they saw in the sky when they looked up at the sky, what they noticed about changing times and seasons. And he worked out that what he was experiencing in terms of the night sky and in terms of the movement of the earth and the weather systems and things like that, people in other parts of the known world weren't experiencing the same things. So he came to the conclusion it has to be round, it has to be a sphere. And he was spot on. And he was so into this that he decided he was going to work out the circumference of the earth's surface. Somewhere between 276 and 194 BC. What an amazing man. If he was here today, we'd give him a great round of applause. People knew the earth was round from Eratosthenes onwards. But one thing that we learn about the big debates of the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and everything else like that, if people lose sight of the word of God and what it's saying, their minds go off into all kinds of myths and fairy tales. Which is why many people did conclude that the earth must be flat. Because when we do not feed on the word of his grace and the word of his power, our brains concoct All kinds of weird and wonderful beliefs. I mean, think about it. We know God is our Father. We know Jesus Christ is our Creator, our Redeemer, our Sanctifier and Lord. Those are our personal names for the one we know to be God. We know the Holy Spirit to be our Counselor and our Comforter. And people who don't accept that, because they think that's old-fashioned thinking... They talk about Mother Nature. They talk about Mother Earth. I saw a video the other day. We were looking at the benefit of nature and the natural realm for one's brain and one's mental health and everything else like that. And I thought, I hope nobody hugs a tree in this video. And we nearly got through it. And it was good. It was very, very good. It was talking about vitamin D, D and vitamin K and the importance of trees giving out oxygen and so on and so forth and us needing oxygen. It was brilliant. And then this woman hugged a tree. And it just lost it for me. But people change the truth about God to images about God that they want for themselves. So there's a lesson there for all of us not to do that. And the only way we will not do that is if we feed daily in the word of God. What about Job again? Job 26, verse 7. Remember, this man was sick. This man was profoundly ill, and he was grieving for his whole family, with the exception of his wife, who had told him to curse God and die. This man had lost everything. I hope that wasn't anybody else's water, because it wasn't mine, and I've just drank it. Job 26, verse 7. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Now, most Bible scholars agree that Job was contemporaneous with Abraham. He lived about 1820 or so BC. So this, these words were spoken whenever they were handed down to us and written down ultimately by Moses. These words were spoken almost 4,000 years ago. And what did Job say in the midst of his sorrow and pain and grief and illness and scratching himself with pieces of broken pottery? He said, God hangs the earth on nothing. We have before us here a piece of ancient literature. What sets it apart from all other forms of ancient literature is that God the Holy Spirit wrote this. God the Holy Spirit used human personalities, more than 40 of them, to give us the truth of his word, the word of his grace and the word of his power. Other forms of ancient literature from this period do exist. One example is the Hindu Vedas. And the Hindu Vedas were written by very, very wise men from an earthly perspective, from an earth-bound perspective. And they wanted to try and understand and help other people to understand what life might be about without the help or inspiration because they didn't know he existed back then in India of the Holy Spirit. So here's what they said about the earth. Remember this document, the Hindu Vedas, probably dates from around the same time, give give or take a couple of hundred years, as what we have in terms of the book of Job. They noticed that the earth moved And every fool knows that anything, especially something as major as the earth, needs to have something holding it up. So if it must have something holding it up, and we also know it moves, both like slowly, and also when there's earthquakes and things like that, what's it likely to be held up by? Well, the answer's obvious. Four elephants. I mean, like, you know, they're kind of like elephants. They're big They can hold this up. Must be elephants. Here's man's tendency, when he doesn't have the word of God again, to explain things. You know, people say, don't they, when I see it, I'll believe it. But you know what? Your eyes play tricks on you. Because your brain plays tricks on you. Because your heart plays tricks on you. Because you're busy hiding from the living God. We all of us have done that. And we all of us continue to do that. Praise God for his grace. Then somebody says... Well, what's holding the elephants up then? Oh, must be a big turtle. And we can't really keep going on ad infinitum about what's holding the turtle up. So let's just say, this is clever, turtles are amphibious, so the turtle is swimming in the biggest sea possible to imagine. So there's your picture. You see the difference? Between when man tries to understand what he sees and experiences on this earth. Same applies to women, male and female, created he them. And what comes to us when God the Holy Spirit is inspiring writing like this. So we've done the heavens. We haven't really done the heavens. We've looked at something that God says about stars. And we've done the earth that he's hung the world on nothing don't know how many years that was before Galileo discovered and articulated the laws of gravity. But glory be to God that the man of God Job, in the midst of his sickness and his sorrow and his grief and his perplexity, could still proclaim truth that the Holy Spirit of God was birthing and breathing and speaking through him. Whatever situation you and I find ourselves in today, we know so much more about the character and nature of God thanks to the word of his grace and the word of his power. Nothing should stop us sharing that word in season and out of season. When we come to everything that dwells in the heavens and the earth, we could go on for years and years and years. So I've chosen man today. So we're at section 3 of your notes. And specifically what I want us to talk about today isn't Dr Paul Brand material about how the human being is made in the image of God though that is wondrous and glorious and everything else like that. What I want us to think about today is how God knows our thoughts and everything that is in our heart. So Matthew 12:25 Jesus knowing their thoughts. Luke 6, verse 8. But he knew what they were thinking. And then, of course, at the end of that wonderful first miracle, according to John, at the feast or wedding at Cana, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. I challenge you sometime to go pick one of the Gospels. And when you've done one, you'll probably want to do at least one of the others. And find out, work through, read diligently the amount of times that Jesus answers a question that hasn't been verbalised or vocalised yet. You'll see it over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Jesus knowing what was going on in head and heart. Answers what they're thinking. He wasn't a mind reader. He was God. And before we go any further, let's just pause. He knows the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. He stretched out the heavens over the earth, the expanding universe, the atmospheric protection over this planet. He hung the world on nothing. How does he know What's going on in all of our heads and hearts? I mean, just look at, I don't know how many people's in this room, but there's people in this room that are listening intently right now. There are people in this room that are pretending that they're listening intently now, but their stomach is rumbling and they're thinking, oh, Philip, this is good, but please draw it to a close There are other people thinking about all sorts of things that happened last week or that may be about to happen next week. And God knows every single thought that is passing through each and every one of our minds right now. Because as Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. Even there there's a scientific statement. God knows the difference between your soul and your spirit. And if you want to understand the difference between your soul and your spirit, understand the difference between your joints and your marrow. But that's another sermon, we won't go into that today. And as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things. Absolutely all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hands up if anybody here has ever been to the Beit Shalom Synagogue, the great synagogue on St. Kilda Road in Melbourne. If you've ever stood in that synagogue beneath the inside of the dome which is mapped out like the heavens, you will know that above the beamer, above the place where the the scrolls are held has written these words remember before whom you stand remember before whom you stand because before whom we all stand and will stand one day is him who there isn't anything that he doesn't know everything about including every thought every intention every attitude in our hearts the omniscience of God the all-knowing nature of God has profound implications for unbelievers and believers alike I'll say that again the omniscience of God has profound implications for unbelievers and for believers alike. Let's start with unbelievers. The omniscience of God, who knows the name of every star, billions of them, and knows every thought that's ever passed through their heads and hearts, is a terrifying prospect, and well so it should be, because the Ten Commandments tell non-believers even if they choose not to read them or listen to them that God's standard is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength and thy neighbour as thyself it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God which is why Adam and Eve hid in the garden isn't it they hid and God's walking in the cool of the garden. And he's shouting, Adam, Adam, where are you? Not because he didn't know. Because remember, there's nothing. There isn't anything about which our God doesn't know everything. He knew which bush Adam and Eve were hiding behind. Even knew which fig leaf they covered themselves with. But unbelieving man, Adam and Eve, knew that day that something had changed. And there's something in the conscience, it might be very deep, of every single human being that knows that something has changed. Which is why the author to the letter of the Hebrews goes on when he's talked about all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do seeing them. That we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Seeing then. Seeing what a difference that has made. I don't know about you but when I come to my prayer closet on an evening. There is rarely a day goes by. When I don't have to say sorry to Jesus. For an attitude that I've carried. A word that I've spoken. An action done in haste. And he never gets tired of me. And hopefully you do something similar. And he never gets tired of you either. And go to Yemen and the wildflowers. Go to Compium and those believers that are holding on and uh, recognising the importance of the work that they're doing. Go to wherever you want to go on this earth. And we all of us need to come before that throne of grace daily. And he never gets tired of us. turn with me to second corinthians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 9 remember this chapter this letter is addressed to believers and we're going to read from verse 10 paul's been talking about the body this earthly tent he's been talking about how it's better to be absent from the body and present with the lord but then in verse 10 he says why that's so important For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the beamer of Christ. Now that's not the judgment of unbelievers. That's not the judgment that's going to cast people into hell. That's the judgment seat for believers in terms of the rewards each will get according to what he has done in the body. If that's the judgment seat by which the whole of humanity is judged, then salvation by faith and grace means nothing. And salvation by faith and grace, as we've already looked at this morning, means everything. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And here's the verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience just like Adam and Eve, hid behind a tree. Since at least 1859, the majority of Western humanity has been hiding behind the evolutionary tree, behind Charles Darwin's so-called origin of species. Why have they been doing that? Even though there's no evidence of any transitional forms one species turning into another, even though good science has proven that it's impossible for one species to turn into another, irrespective of how much time you've given it, they've been doing that because they're hiding from the God who knows them right well. And our duty and our responsibility is to proclaim the fact that there isn't anything about which The living God doesn't know everything. So the next time somebody says to you, oh, well, I'd be a Christian, but I really can't go for that six-day creation nonsense, ask them. Give me an example of where it's nonsensical. Hold the discussion a little bit and see what God does. The next time somebody says to you doesn't get as far as the question of evolution and creation. The next time they say to you, Well, I've lived a good life. Hmm. But the searching light of the Ten Commandments, remember before whom you stand, says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind. Have you done that? And by the way, your neighbour as yourself. The days are short. And times are perilous. But times were perilous for Job, for Isaiah, for Hannah, for the Apostle Paul. All God asks of us is that we grow to know Him better, to love Him more, and to be willing to witness to the Word of his grace and the word of his power our second reading for today Psalm 113 and in a few minutes we're going to sing verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 113 and I want to say a big thank you to Mr Luke Goddard for introducing me to this song at a prayer meeting we had only a few weeks ago now bless you Luke this song has been such a joy and a blessing to me in my prayer closet. I don't know whether it's been the same kind of blessing to Linda as I've sung it out loud (laughs) in the privacy of our home but thank you Luke because this is quite some song. But in the meantime let's pray. Father Hannah in that glorious song said that you are a God of knowledges and by you, actions are weighed. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that we were once weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, came to our aid, to our assistance. And as Paul read this morning, Lord, from First Peter, we were saved by your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we didn't get what we deserved. Thank you for mercy. And thank you, Lord, that in grace, we get what we don't deserve. As we've heard this word, as we've engaged with this word, Lord, today, we thank you for your omniscience, for your all-knowing nature. Spirit of God, continue to search our hearts that our consciences might be more and more conformed to what is right and good and holy in your sight. And that we might be ever more willing, Lord, to share a word in season of what you have taught us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, world without end. Amen.